Our Father in heaven, we thank you so much for this Sabbath and this opportunity that we have to come apart from the cares of this life, from our work and school, to be able to reflect on your goodness towards us. And Father, my feet are made of clay. I need your help. We pray for the Holy Spirit to guide our thoughts tonight. Bless each heart and each mind, and may you apply the truth specifically to each individual here tonight. For we ask these things in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, this weekend, we're going to be focusing on the Holy Spirit. And my understanding is that a few months ago, you had someone come and share about the personhood of the Holy Spirit and the theology of the Holy Spirit. And this evening and tomorrow and tomorrow afternoon, we'll be focusing on the practical aspects of the Holy Spirit that applies to our day-to-day -day lives. And I pray that this is a blessing to you and your own Christian experience. And I want to begin by a quotation from a Reformed theologian, Emel Brunner. He wrote that the Holy Ghost has always more or less been the stepchild of theology. And I think that his concept or reflection on the Holy Spirit is true in this aspect because we, we talk a lot about Jesus, and we should. Of course, we talk about the Father, and we should as well. But the Holy Spirit is this mysterious entity, and uh, we, we don't talk a lot about the Holy Spirit in respect to the other individuals in the Godhead. In many circles, this seems to be the case. But let's look at Jesus' own words in John chapter 16 and verse 7. He says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go, the Helper will not come to you, but if I depart, I will send him to you. Jesus says, it's to your advantage that I leave. Now, to the disciples, this may seem strange because they probably thought, I see no advantage in Jesus leaving. We don't have his presence with us anymore, but Jesus says, look, it's to your advantage, it's to your benefit that I leave and that the Holy Spirit come. Now, the book Desire of Ages indicates the reason why it was advantageous for Jesus to leave and for the Holy Spirit to come. The Holy Spirit is Christ's representative, but divested of the personality of humanity and independent thereof. Cumbered with humanity, Christ could not be in every place personally. Therefore, it was for their interest that he should go to the Father and send the Spirit to be his successor on earth. No one could then have any advantage because of his location or his personal contact with Christ. By the Spirit, the Savior would, would be accessible to all. In this sense, he would be nearer to them than he had if he had not ascended on high. So here is one advantage. Jesus, when he came as a babe and walked on earth, he divested himself of one key attribute of what it meant to be God, and that was omnipresence, the ability to be everywhere at once. Jesus walked in Palestine. He didn't walk in Alaska or even Loma Linda. That was a limitation that he chose to take. So when Jesus went to heaven, he sent the Spirit. And praise God, the Spirit is here. Amen? Amen. And at the same time, the Spirit is in Alaska, in South America, in Africa. So this was a key advantage that no matter where you were on planet Earth, God would be with you. When you look at Acts of the Apostles, page 53, Ellen White indicates that the Spirit is given as a, what? As a regenerating agency to make effectual the salvation wrought by the death of our Savior. In other words, the Spirit is the medium 
through which the benefits of the sacrifice of Christ is applied to each individual. It is through the Holy Spirit, and I love this quotation from the book Desire of Ages 672, this promised blessing, the Holy Spirit, claimed by faith, brings all other blessings in its train. Now think about the implications of that. If you have the Holy Spirit, all other blessings come in its train. Another thing that Jesus said about the Holy Spirit in John chapter 14, verse 16 and 17, and I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. The spirit of truth, the world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But if you know him, for he lives, and what does the Bible say? With you, for he lives with you. I have that part italicized and will be where? In you. Notice that Jesus says to his disciples, he currently lives with you. Now, the word Holy Spirit in the Greek is paraclete. What is para? Alongside, okay? And this is the indication that Jesus gives here, for he lives with you. And notice the tense of what Jesus says in the next part of this verse. Will be, that means future, where? In you. In other words, the Holy Spirit takes from a position of with, alongside, to the position of where? In. From the position of with to the position of in. That happened at Pentecost. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 24, and by this we know that he, Jesus, abides where? In us by the Spirit whom he has given us. The Holy Spirit will bring the presence of Jesus into us. And we've heard the in Christ motif throughout the epistles of Paul, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now here's a practical question. How does Christ abide in us? Ever wondered that? Jesus is physically in heaven. How is Jesus in us? It is through the Holy Spirit. When we invite the Holy Spirit to fill us, the Spirit brings with him the presence of Jesus. Amen? Amen? Can you see how essential the Holy Spirit is? This is not some peripheral tangent of a concept, of an idea, of a person. The Holy Spirit brings with him Jesus, the presence of Jesus. So when you invite the Holy Spirit to fill your heart, you are having Jesus fill your heart. And even though Jesus is in heaven ministering in the most holy place of the heavenly sanctuary, through the Holy Spirit, all of us have the capacity to be filled with the Spirit of God. Amen? The Spirit of Jesus. This is why the Holy Spirit is so essential. A.W. Tozer makes this remarkable statement when he says, if the Holy Ghost were taken away from our church today, 95% of what we do would continue and no one would notice the difference. If the Holy Ghost had withdrawn from the early church, then 95% of what they were doing would have stopped and everyone would have noticed the difference. I believe that for much of our church today, we have become so institutionalized and so dependent upon humanity that the Holy Spirit were, were, were to be withdrawn tomorrow. In many circles, church would just continue on. Sabbath school would just continue on. Our worship service would continue on. And most people would not even know. But in the book of Acts, you, re you remove the Holy Spirit and everything comes to a screeching halt. No Holy Spirit, 
No Book of Acts. This is from Michael Green in the book, 30 Years That Changed the World. He says, three crucial decades in world history. This is all it took. In the years between AD 33 and 64, a new movement was born. In those 30 years, it got sufficient growth and credibility to become the largest religion the world has ever seen and to change the lives of hundreds of millions of people. It has spread to every corner of the globe and has more than two billion putative adherents. It has left an indelible impact on civilization, on culture, on education, on medicine. We're here at Loma Linda University. On freedom and, of course, the lives of countless people worldwide. And the seedbed for all this, the time when it took decisive root, was in these three decades. It all began with a dozen men and a handful of women. And then the Spirit came. Think about that. 120 individuals gathered together in an upper room praying for the Holy Spirit. And in 30 years, they changed the world. They had no money, no resources, very little education. Changed the world with the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 2, verse 4, we can see that the Holy Spirit goes from a with position to an in position. Remember what Jesus said? He is with you, but will be in you. And in Acts chapter 2, verse 4, we see, and they were all filled, that implies an internal filling, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Acts chapter 4, verse 31, and they had all prayed. The place where they were assembled together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke with the word, the word of God with boldness. Acts chapter 13, verse 52. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. The Bible indicates that we as human beings have the potential and the capacity to be filled with different spirits. I've been in different circles, and I have engaged with people that have been filled with a spirit. And it wasn't the Holy Spirit. I remember I was uh, a Bible worker in South Central Los Angeles. Uh, they pitched a tent on Florence and Figueroa. Have you ever been by there? Probably not, maybe. And uh, anyways, we, we pitched a tent, uh, 20 Bible workers going door to door in South Central and and Watts. Uh, I felt out of place. Uh, long story short, we had about 900 to 1,000 people coming to the tent. No mail out, just going door to door. And I remember one night after the sermon, uh, we would have a prayer time and people would just wander into the tent and we were praying in a circle. And the gentleman next to me prayed and he said, Father, get these demons out of me. And when he said the word demons, his voice dropped about three octaves. And another voice started speaking, and I just cringed and I prayed. Um, he was demon-possessed. He was filled with a different spirit. I was in Michigan camp meeting, and in the teen tent, there was a young man that wandered into the teen tent. He was demon-possessed. And Mel Santos, who is now in the Alaska Conference as executive secretary, was leading that teen tent. I just found out from him recently that they were engaging that man, and the demon was talking to them. And he told him his name. He said, my name is Legion. And you remember the Bible story where there was another uh, encounter that Jesus had, and the same name was brought up. Anyways, they, they cast out the demon, they prayed, and the demon came out, and it went into a Bible worker. The Bible worker fell over. And they prayed and went out of the Bible worker, and they went to the Bible worker later on for some counseling, and they said, look, uh, there's something wrong. Uh, the demon felt that he had an opening in you, 
And he said, I know exactly what it was. We as human beings are not only physical, but we are spiritual beings. I know we live in a world that doesn't believe in that part of our dimension of our humanity. Well, actually, we're, we're living in an age where people are more and more open to that. But the Bible indicates that we have this unique capacity as human beings to be filled with different spirits. And I believe that in the Christian experience, the key to living a Christ-like life begins with this invitation of having the Spirit of God fill us. Amen? This is, this is where it begins. Now, the Bible indicates that there are three groups of people in respect to their personal relationship with God. The first group is a group of people that have a full, real relationship. The Bible calls this a spirit-filled person. And you can tell what a spirit-filled person is like because the Bible indicates that there are certain visible evidences, certain visible manifestations, and we call them fruit. You can't see the root, but you can see the fruit. In other words, you can't tell if someone is spirit-filled. You don't see that spirit filling them or abiding in them, but there are certain visible manifestations. And here are the fruit of the spirit. It's not the fruits of the spirit. They're the fruit of the spirit. In other words, you can't say, uh, I'm going to have one of these, but the other one is not my fruit. You can't say, I'm going to be long-suffering, but not loving. Yeah, you either have them or you don't have them. Okay? And the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. The Bible uses the metaphor of fruit, and the beauty of this is you don't see see fruit right away. There's development. You accept Christ, you come to Jesus just the way that you are. He fills you, he works with you. I had a lot of issues when I came to Jesus. I still do, but by the grace of God, there has been growth and maturity. And as you live your Christian experience, you will see some visible fruit, and many times it's not even conscious to you, but other people will recognize it. Just like when you're trying to watch grass grow, painful, right? And it's the same way in your Christian experience. You, you may not feel like you're growing, but if you're filled with the Spirit on a daily basis, you will have fruit. The other uh, type of individual, oh, here it is, here's the fruit of the Spirit, an illustration of that. A, a second group is what we call uh, the natural man. They have no relationship with God, and the Bible uh, says that they will have certain visible manifestations as well. And just like we read about the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, here are the fruit of the flesh, the works of the flesh. Now, the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousy, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissension, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelry, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I told you in times past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Here are visible manifestations of the natural man. In other words, if you are not filled with the Spirit of God, you will naturally manifest these types of characteristics. Now, you look through these, uh, these, this list, and, and some of them, I'm like, oh my, sorcery? Oh, okay, that, that, that doesn't apply to me. Um, you know, there, there's some other ones here, murderers or murderers drunkenness, revelry, you know, you're just kind of like, but let's look at some of these other ones. How about jealousy? Ouch. 
right? Outbursts of wrath. Have you ever had one of those? Outbursts of wrath. Selfish ambition. Ever have that? Dissension. So some of these are more universal. We all struggle with these parts, or some of these parts. Uh, there's another thing about the natural man as well in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. Now, when we talked about the works of the flesh, they were usually actions or behaviors or motivations. But notice that a spirit, a person that is devoid of the spirit, also has something else that is going on as well. It affects their ability to discern, to understand, to perceive the things of God, and they are foolishness to him. And it doesn't matter how high your IQ may be. If we are devoid of the Spirit of God, you will not see things right. This is what the Bible indicates. So it not only affects our behavior and our motivations, but it also affects our spiritual perception. The third group that the Bible talks about is what is called the carnal Christian. Now, this is actually an oxymoron because a carnal Christian is, uh, is really self-deceived. But the Bible does call uh, Christians carnal, and this is in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 1 through 4. And I, brethren, could not speak to you as spiritual people, but as to carnal. He's talking to the Corinthian church. He said, look, you, you may be professing Christianity, but you're carnal. As to babes, I fed you with milk and not with solid food, for until now you were not able to receive it, and even now you are still not able, for you are still carnal. For where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not carnal? Now notice that he calls the Corinthian church, or members of the Corinthian church, carnal, and they are exhibiting some of the behavior that we've seen in Galatians 5, the works of the flesh. Envy, strife, and divisions. Now, in Revelation chapter 3, verse 15 and 16, it puts it a little bit different way. The carnal Christian is called the lukewarm Christian. I know your works, that you were neither cold nor hot, I wish you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. I have been a pastor. Um, it hasn't been that long, but it's been long enough. I started in 2003. Don't let this baby base fool you, you know. I'm not 22, you know, or 18. Um, 2003, uh, I haven't been in ministry for decades, but I've been in ministry long enough to recognize that the issue in our church today, and I believe since the day that it was conceived, really stems down to this root issue. Is that we are living in a time, in a culture, in a church, where we need the Spirit of God. Amen? And it doesn't matter if you're conservative or liberal or consider yourself a moderate, I have seen carnal conservatives. I've seen carnal liberals. I've seen self-proclaimed carnal moderates. I'm not saying that theology is irrelevant, but at the root of our being, is this reality 
in many cases, if I reflect on my own Christian experience of being devoid of the Spirit of God, of having this profession, but not really being filled with the Holy Spirit, I believe if every member of the Seventh-day Adventist Church was filled with the Holy Spirit, we would not be arguing about the issues that we are arguing about today. Or maybe we would be disagreeing, but we would not be disagreeing in the way that we are disagreeing today. It really has to do this part. And, and notice what the remedy is here that Jesus gives in Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, to the lukewarm, to the carnal church. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, and notice what Jesus says, I will, what? Come in. I will come in. In other words, the remedy for the carnal Christian is for Jesus to come in. And how does Jesus come into a person? It's through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the agent, entity, the agency, the person through which Jesus abides inside an individual. The metaphor that Jesus uses here is the metaphor of knocking on a door. Now, for a number of years, I sold books uh, canvassing. Anyone here ever canvassed before? Oh, we got um, And I learned very quickly that there are some ground rules. I, I canvassed in the South, Arkansas, Florida, New England, you know, Michigan, California, I mean, I, I, I can't, and it didn't matter where you were, there were certain ground rules. When the person would come to the door, there was a certain threshold that I would refuse to cross. It didn't matter if they gave me money, it didn't matter if they gave me food, they could give me hundreds of dollars. In some cases, they did. I would stand right there. Now, there's a certain uh, trick. I don't know if it's a trick. I learned it from Eugene Pruitt. He said, when you're cold in the wintertime and you're canvassing, and we canvass year-round in Arkansas, and he said, you go to the door and you feel this warm air come out. He said, you tell them, ma'am, I'm so sorry to let all your hot air out. And you know what they say? They look at the door and they look and they say, oh, come in, come in. I'd be like, oh, thank you very much. I just walk right in. And, and I remember one time I said, uh, sir, sorry to let your hot air out. And they were like, oh, okay. And they closed the door behind them and, and uh, talked to me outside. I was like, oh, it didn't work. But, but it, it, was, it, was, it was this, this barrier that I would not cross until they would say those words, come on in. It gave me permission to enter. I mean, those, those are powerful words. In other words, I would stand there at the threshold until I heard those words, come on in. Now, can you imagine, especially in Alaska, where like everybody's armed, it seems like, you know, and if, if I were just to walk in when they opened the door, I'd probably get shot. Okay? Because that is an intrusion. It's an intrusion. So come on in gives you permission to enter. And notice what Jesus is saying here in Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. The implication that Jesus is giving is that for, Je for Jesus to enter, I mean, this is the very foundation of the Christian experience, is consent. Consent. I give you permission. To come in. I mean, powerful words. Now, I pray that you never give that type of consent to the other side. Because once he comes in, it takes an intervention to get him out. But notice what Jesus is saying. Look, I will come in, and this is the solution to the Laodicean church to the carnal Christian, for the Spirit of God to come in and bring with him the presence of Jesus Christ. 
When we look at Ellen White and her statement here in Review and Herald, 1890, he who is trying to reach heaven by his own works in keeping the law is attempting an impossibility. Man cannot be saved without obedience, but his work should not be of himself. And notice what Ellen White says here. Christ should work in him to will and to do of his good pleasure. Christ should work in him to will and to do of his good pleasure. Very quickly, in Luke chapter 11, verses 1 through 13, uh, Jesus gives the parable of that uh, man that goes to his friend's house because he has a guest. Remember that story? And he keeps knocking on the door, and the other man is in bed with his children, and the person keeps on persisting and knocking because he just had a host of guests that have arrived. He has nothing to set before them. Remember that story? And he keeps on knocking and knocking, and finally that man gets out of bed. Uh, I had an experience uh, not too long ago... Uh, Shortly after we had our son, uh, I didn't realize um, how little sleep uh, you, you get after. Uh, it was just foreign to me. A any, anyways, we're just, we're just like zombies. So sleep was, is so precious. So finally, our son is sleeping. He's just a few months old. And so we're, we're, we're just taking advantage of that sleeping. And then in the middle of the night comes this tapping. It was like tap, 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 tap. And my wife gets up, because I'm like not really conscious. She, she goes and, and looks at what's going on, and she comes back and she says, honey, someone is tapping on our window. And honestly, I thought, I, know my, I knew my wife should have let me get a gun. Anyways, uh, so, I mean, that was my first response. But anyway, I'm just, just being real. And in the middle of the night, tap, 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 tap. And so I get up, and sure enough, looming by the window is this large figure of a man just tapping on the window. And it is like 2 o'clock in the morning in Anchorage, and I didn't know this, they call Anchorage Lost Anchorage for a reason, because all the gangs from California evidently moved up there. I mean, terrible crime. And so tapping on the window, and I'm just like, I was just like, oh. And, and we looked closer, and it was a friend, a former friend. Anyway, he was tapping, and, and he, he needed something badly. He had left his car in our driveway, and we had his keys, and we, he had evidently come earlier than we expected, and, or we had forgotten. I forgot what exactly happened, but he was not going to leave until he got his keys. So tap, tap, tap. I mean, the persistence and the annoying, I mean, nature of that. I mean, it, it was not a time to just let it go. He was going to persist until he got what he came for. And this is what Jesus is illustrating here. Now, please don't misunderstand this parable. God is not reluctant to give something to us. The point of this parable is found right here in verse 8 and 9. The Bible indicates because of his, what does it say? Persistence. He will rise and give him as many as he needs. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. So the point of this parable is persistence in asking. Keep on asking. Don't stop. Just like that man's like tap, 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 tap. And just like that person that was knocking on our window at 2 a.m. until he got what he came for, tap, tap, tap. Jesus says we should have that same tenacity and that same persistence. That is the punchline of this parable. And here's some synonyms. I love synonyms. Constantly, continuously, tenaciously, unrelentingly, perseveringly, repeatedly, tirelessly, steadfastly. 
Now, when you look at the rest of these verses, I want you to see how many times Jesus says the word ask. So I say to you, ask and it'll be given to you. Seek and you'll find. Knock and it'll be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it'll be opened. If a person asks for bread from any father among you, will he give him a stone? If he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg... Will he offer him a scorpion? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the what? Give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. Now, we use this verse or these verses in application to say, oh, ask for a car, ask for a house, you know, ask for these things, persist in asking. Well, you, you may be able to apply it to that, but here, Jesus is specifically talking about the Holy Spirit. This is the greatest gift that he desires to give to his church, to give to you and to give to me. I and mean, this, is, this is what he wants to give, the Holy Spirit. Remember, the Holy Spirit brings all other blessings in its train. The Holy Spirit brings with him the presence of Jesus this is the gift that heaven longs to give. And yet Jesus tells this parable of relentlessly asking for the Holy Spirit. In other words, it's not ask once and done. It is asking continuously with persistence. Now, this is not because God is like, oh, I think uh, David's asked for the Holy Spirit a hundred times, I think I'll give it to him. That's not what the Bible is implying or indicating. Now, when you look at the original language in the Greek tense, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who, who ask him, the Greek tense literally says, keep on asking. In other words, it's not saying just ask once, it's continually asking. Keep on asking. Now, this is from Christ Object Lessons, page 145. God does not say, ask once and you shall receive. He bids us, ask unwearingly, persist in prayer. The persistent asking brings the petitioner into a more earnest attitude and gives him an increased desire to receive the things for which he asks. In other words... God has a problem. He longs to give us the Holy Spirit, to fill us with the Holy Spirit. But our cups are like this big or smaller. You ever try to fill something that is like, has very little capacity? And what asking does, continually asking, is that it increases our capacity to receive the Holy Spirit. The posture of prayer changes us. Changes us. And here it is in Desire of Ages, page 672. If the Holy Spirit is given according to the riches of the grace of Christ, he is ready to supply every soul to the capacity to receive. There's something about praying and asking for something over and over and over again. It increases our desire and capacity to receive the Holy Spirit. D.L. Moody says, many think that because they are filled once, they are filled forever. Oh, my friend, we are porous vessels. It is necessary for us to constantly remain under the fountain in order to be full. Porous vessels. My wife and I, oh, we're married about 10 years, and we weren't planning on having children, planning on adopting or fostering, and we got up to Alaska, and surprise. 
And uh, it was a startling uh, reality. Just reframed everything. Now he's almost two years old and can't imagine life without him. Isn't that amazing? And uh, my wife and I are both type A personalities and we, uh, we wanted to be ready for this baby. So we read, we even had an app for, um, for the contractions. It was amazing because you, you start when the contraction begins and you stop and, and then after a while it has all these analytics that come out and so forth. And <clears throat> we didn't know that that would prolong the, the, uh, the labor because she had 52 hours of labor. It was, it was just, and um, finally the midwife said, can you just get rid of that thing, you know, because it's, it's messing us up, you know, because it was just, we're so uptight, you know, I just got to get this, you know, get this thing here. And went to all these classes. I mean, we were ready, had all these books, and it just, and then we had a friend that just relaxed, and the baby came out, no problem, you know, and we're like, oh, wow. I mean, and, and so, so much of the, of the focus was on the birth, and rightfully so. Finally, the baby came after 52 hours of labor. And after the baby came, you know, you're in this glow. They take you to the mother-baby unit and so forth. And then over our fog-filled consciousness comes the startling realization that this baby needs daily if not hourly, constant filling. Filling. I, I remember when the midwife came to me and told me, you know, the baby needs to eat every one and a half to two hours. And I was like, wait, wait, one and a half, two hours, like around the clock, like 24 hours? She's like, yeah. And, and I was like, are, are you serious? I, I, now, look at the implications of this. You know, the Bible calls the Christian experience the new birth. That, that is the analogy. I mean, you don't take a baby that's born, just put it on the shelf and be like, oh, the, the baby was born. Let's just go on with business as usual. There is maintenance and care and filling of that baby on a regular basis. Every one and a half, two hours for the first few weeks, that baby needs constant filling. And I believe that in our Christian experience, we focus so much on the birth, which we should, because there's no life without birth. Christians are born, and then we put them on the pew, and we just say, okay, you're good. And I believe that many Christians have never gotten out of diapers. They're in the NICU, because they've been born but they haven't been filled regularly by the Holy Spirit. This is a key part of the Christian experience. It's not either or. It's both and. Born and continually being filled. And the, the ministry of the Holy Spirit. You're born of the Spirit and you're filled by the Spirit. And this filling by the Spirit is... Daily. Daily. Here it is. Acts of the Apostles, page 56. To the consecrated follower of Jesus, there is wonderful consolation in the knowledge that even Christ, during his life on earth, sought his Father daily for fresh supplies of needed grace. Jesus, being filled and baptized by the Holy Spirit, and here it is, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. Now think about the implications of this. The inner man is being renewed day by day. Daily being filled by the Holy Spirit in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 16 and 17 and 19. He that would grant you, according to the riches of His glory, to be strengthened with, you, with might through His Spirit in the where? 
in the inner man, so the Spirit strengthens the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. It brings it all together. That you being rooted and grounded in love may be filled with all the fullness of God. Notice what the Bible is saying here. We are renewed in the inner man by the Holy Spirit. And when we're renewed, it says that Christ may dwell in us. And this happens daily. Daily. It's not once filled, always filled. We need daily filling by the Holy Spirit. Acts of the Apostles, page 50. For the daily baptism of the Spirit, every worker should offer his petition to God. And here is where the practice of our Christian experience lies. I was at a ministerial meeting and we were given this quotation from the book Education, page 260. In the midst of this maddening rush, God is speaking. He bids us come apart and commune with him, many even in their seasons of devotion, fail of receiving the blessing of real communion with God. They are in too great haste. With hurried steps, they press through the circle of Christ's loving presence, pausing perhaps a moment within the sacred precincts, but not waiting for counsel. They have no time to remain with the divine teacher. With their burdens, they return to their work. They must give themselves time to think, to pray, to wait upon God for a renewal of physical, mental, and spiritual power. They need the uplifting influence of His Spirit. Receiving this, they will be quickened by fresh life. The wearied frame and tired brain will be refreshed. The burdened heart will be lightened. Not a pause for a moment in His presence, but personal contact with Christ to sit down in compassion, companionship with Him. This is our need. I read a book recently called The Power of Habit. And according to this book, there are certain things called keystone habits. A keystone habit is a habit that impacts almost every other area of our life. life. And um, exercise is a keystone habit, according to this book. Um, when people start exercising habitually, even as infrequently as once a week, they start changing other unrelated patterns in their lives. Often unknowingly, typically people who exercise start eating better and becoming more productive at work. They smoke less and show more patience with colleagues and family. They use their credit cards less frequently and say they feel less stressed. It's not completely clear why, but for many people, exercise is a keystone habit that triggers widespread change. Exercise has the keystone habit characteristic of impacting other areas of our lives, like finances and stress and so forth. So a keystone habit, according to this book, is one habit that alters every area of life. A keystone habit creates a chain reaction, changing and rearranging your other habits as you integrate the habit into your life. And so, I believe that time with God is a keystone habit. A keystone habit. It is a habit that will frame and revolutionize every other area of your life. Time with God. And an important foundational aspect of our time with God is that invitation daily to say, Lord, I want you not just with, but I want you in. I want you to fill me today with the Holy Spirit, to give that consent. I want to end with this quotation from the book Steps to Christ. Uh, And I pray that this is your experience. Consecrate yourself to God in the morning 
Make this your very first work. Let your prayer be, take me, O Lord, as wholly thine. I lay all my plans at thy feet. Use me today in thy service. Abide with me and let all my work be wrought in thee. This is a daily matter. Each morning, consecrate yourself to God for that day. Surrender all your plans to him to be carried out or to be given up as his providence shall indicate. Thus, day by day, you shall be giving your life into the hands of God, and thus your life will be molded more and more into the life of Christ. One last quotation. This is from Acts of the Apostles, page 52, and this is so encouraging to me. The lapse of time has wrought no change in Christ's parting promise to send the Holy Spirit as his representative. It is not because of any restriction on the part of God that the riches of his grace do not flow earthward to men. If all were willing, all would be filled with the Spirit. This is what we need. And I believe here in Loma Linda that if a group of individuals gather together to pray individually and corporately for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, God will revolutionize this campus. God will revolutionize this community and we will see the book of Acts again. Amen? I am tired of average. I'm tired of mediocre. I'm tired of just going along with the status quo. The Holy Spirit will be poured out. Amen? And it's to those that are daily receiving the Holy Spirit. So my desire this weekend is that all of us will be touched by his spirit amen to be filled daily to be convicted and uh, to be a spirit-filled christian let's bow our heads as we pray father in heaven we thank you for the promise of the holy spirit we thank you that the holy spirit brings all other blessings in his train we thank you that the promise of the Holy Spirit is as alive and real today as you gave it over 2,000 years ago. And today I pray for every individual here that you would convict us, Lord. That you would convert us. That you would fill us daily with the Holy Spirit. Help us to be willing to be made willing. Do for us what is impossible for us to do of our own work in us to will and to do of your good pleasure. For we ask these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.